Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. We'll be in Genesis 2 for the next um, three sermons now, looking at humanity in communion with God. This week, uh, this morning, humanity in covenant with God next week, and then humanity in communion in the, the covenant of marriage rather, uh, the week after that. But this morning, we're looking at humanity and communion with God together. Uh, Before we get started, let's take a moment and pray. God, our Father, most gracious Savior, we come to you now before and, and under your word, asking you that you would make it a swift word to us, passing from our ears to our hearts, from our hearts to our lips and conversations, that as rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it has been given this morning. Speak now, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, we all long to belong, don't we? We all long for intimate connection in some place with someone or some ones to and with whom our lives are well-suited. One pastor who's a part of our, the church network that we belong to wrote a piece on this recently reflecting on the, the increasing frequency with which we see these words in our culture, you belong here. You belong here. He says, we find these words on the walls of fitness clubs, in social media groups, and throughout co-working spaces, from psychologists and therapists to retail store advertisers. Everywhere we turn, there are promises of belonging. Why has this become a trending topic and marketing hook in our culture? What, what do these branding experts know and what are they seeking to tap into? What, what about the promise of belonging garners such appeal for us? Well, anecdotal experience along with accumulating research would tell us that there is indeed deep within us as human beings a consistent ache, a, a gnawing hunger, a deep longing for belonging in this life. Within each of us is an earnest sense that we were made for something more than we now currently experience in this life, which of course is obvious to us in times of hardship and suffering. When going through life's many difficulties and distresses, we can easily recognize that we are made for something more than this world has to offer us in this present moment. But even in times of of comfort and ease, even when our circumstances in life are precisely what we would want them to be. Have you ever laid down at night after having a marvelous day when all things seem to be as they should, job is going well, family is good, finances are secure, you're you're healthy, you're well-fed, everything seems wonderful, and yet you can't escape this haunted feeling that you were still made for something more than all of this, that you still haven't quite found where it is that you belong. I want you to imagine this morning as we read Genesis 2, 4 through 17, these words hanging over the place we see described, you 
belong here. And not in the same way that you might see them at a fitness center or office space or social media group. I don't think anyone actually feels acknowledged or affirmed by those words in such settings, do they? But the longing and desire that those words are typically meant to appeal to, the Bible would tell us, are actually pointing us back to what we see being described here, to the place and to the person to whom we actually belong. And so with that, if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence and rejoicing to the word of our God, and I'm going I'm to do my best to remember our new concluding words the end of our scripture reading. And if I don't, you'll just have to be gracious with me. It's been seven years of habits. So here we go. Genesis 2, 4 through 17. Let's listen with open ears and open hearts. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah. Where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Well, as we move on now from our four Sundays in Genesis 1-1 through 2-3, that's the, the kind of section that we were considering over the last four Sundays, we, we come now to a bit of a transition, don't we? Uh, from what we've just read, I, I trust that you see, uh, so, you notice here some, some striking differences in the creation account in Genesis 2-4 and on with what we read and worked through in, in Genesis 1-2-3 through 2, 3 over the past four Sundays, and Now, because of some of these difficulties, uh, some biblical scholars have sometimes claimed that we're actually seeing two contrasting or perhaps even contradictory creation accounts from two different sources. That Genesis 1-1 through 2-3 was probably written by, you know, one guy, 
And then Genesis 2, 4 and on was written by some other guy at some other time. And that someone eventually came along and, and put these two unrelated stories together, which is why they're both here back to back in the same book, even with their differences and emphasis and detail. From the outset here, I, I want you to see that that conclusion is actually unmerited and that the presence of these transitional words in verse 4 here is actually an indication to us that these two accounts are meant to exist in harmony with one another, that there is indeed a continuity and a complementarity to Genesis 1 and 2, that they rightly belong together, even as Genesis 2 here offers something of a different perspective when looking at the same events. Here in verse 4, we come to our first toledote, right? If you were with us for our first Sunday in Genesis, you may recall our discussion of this Hebrew word toledot, or as the ESV translates it here, uh, generations. Um, and you see it here on the screen. You can see how this word toledot, or generations, helps organize really the whole of the book of Genesis for us. It kind of serves to divide Genesis into something almost like 10 chapters, right? When you see this word, you know that something of, of like a new chapter is beginning in the book. And you know that that's what's happening here in Genesis 2. Now Genesis 1, which serves as something of an introduction or prologue to the book of Genesis for us, has now come to its conclusion. But now the first chapter, as it were, is beginning. It's saying, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And so we see here, we're beginning chapter one of Genesis, as it were. You might think, though, as we just read these words here, that they seem like kind of an odd thing to say. We don't typically think of like heavens and earth having generations or, 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 or having yeah, seed of, of some sort. We wouldn't typically think of the heavens and the earth as having generations. But essentially, what it's saying is this. What you're about to read about from Genesis 2 and 3 and 4 here is the events and peoples that followed the creation of the heavens and the earth, right? We've seen the creation of the heavens and the earth, the creation of the cosmos in Genesis 1 up to Genesis 2, 3. But now here's what followed. These are the peoples, the families, the events that followed that initial creating act that we just read about. And as we transition from the introduction of Genesis to the first chapter of Genesis, we also transition from something of a global cosmic description of the creation act to something of a more localized, intimate depiction of it, right? It's, it's kind of like when you search on Google Maps, right? You search for a city on Google Maps. I was just in Louisville a couple of weeks ago. So imagine, you know, you say you're searching for Louisville on Google Maps. Initially, you see, what do you see? You see the satellite depiction of the city of Louisville, right? It's a view from heaven. But then you might maybe want to get a better look at what things look like on the ground. So you begin clicking on, on the different pictures of the city that have been posted there on, on Google Maps. And the pictures show the same place, the same city, at a more of a street-level kind of view, where you see the Louisville Slugger Museum, or Churchill Downs, or you see the Angel's Envy Distillery. Well, kind of like that. In Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, we get something of a satellite view of the creation of the cosmos. We get the big picture there, but here we're coming down to earth. Now we're, we're getting local. We're getting a more intimate depiction of the creation event, and particularly the creation of humanity, of Adam and Eve, and the land that they were meant to dwell in. 
And with that, there are also different truths being emphasized for us here. In Genesis 1, then we see God revealed as the glorious king, as the cosmic creator, as the transcendent one, as the almighty one, as the one who is altogether different from us and holy. But then now, what, what we're reading in Genesis 2, 4 and on, are, are we now seeing a different but also complementary truth revealed? Are we now seeing that, that, that our God is, in addition to being almighty and holy and transcendent, is also a God who is, who is imminent, which is to say he's a God who, who desires to know us and to be known by us. He's a God who desires to, to be near us and to dwell with us. We see here God intimately relating to and dwelling with his human creatures in a way that is startling and moving and inviting. And that's what I want us to look at here this morning. Here in Genesis 2, 4 through 17, we see that humanity's generation and dwelling in the garden reveals that we belong in such intimacy with God. We belong in these, these close quarters with Him. We belong in His relational presence. To put it succinctly, we belong in reference to God, in relationship with God, and in residence near God. And that's our kind of outline this morning. And so we're going to take each one in turn as we look at our text together. First, though, we see here that we belong in reference to God. We belong in reference to God, which is to say that our lives will only ever make sense when they're lived in relation to Him, that our lives will never really make sense apart from Him. And this is rooted in the fact that we are His creatures, which we see here in verses 5 to 9. Look at verses 5, 6, and 8, where we see that we're created for God's purposes, to tend to and cultivate and develop His good world for His purposes which we'll talk more about in the coming weeks. We see there in verses 7 and 9 that we were created in dependence upon the Lord as He provides humanity with life and breath and food. But really, I want to narrow in on verse 7 here as, as kind of a mountain peak part of this text. We read that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. In other words, we, we see here that our first father, Adam, was created from the earth, from the ground. And, and the name that we come to call him by in verse 20 itself indicates this. It's kind of a play on words. The man's name is Adam, and the word translated as ground here is the Hebrew word Adamah. You can easily see the similarity there. And part of what this is, is meant to highlight for us is something of our creatureliness. And, and in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew worldview, being rooted in the ground, being uh, related to the ground is, is meant to show something of your creatureliness, your dependence, your, your lowliness. Or we're formed by God. We're, we are made creatures. The true, as David says in Psalm 139, we're fearfully and wonderfully made, but still we are made. We are like pottery formed and shaped by the divine potter himself, and thus our existence can really only ever make sense when lived in reference to him. And moreover, it goes on to say that we're not just formed dust and dirt. Verse 7 goes on to say that the Lord God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Or some translations say he became a living soul. I want us to understand here that that's getting at far more than just the input of oxygen into the man's lungs. 
right? It's, it's not just that the Lord God formed a corpse here and carried out the first instance, the first instance of CPR. The, the, the breath of God here imparts a non-material aspect of man's being. So that the man here is, is shown not to just be a material being. We're not just bodies, right? We're not just matter. We, we, we're not just physical beings. We are spiritual beings as well. A human persons are here shown to, to have a soul, as we sometimes call it, to be animated by an inner self that is essential to, to who we are as human beings so, so that we're capable of, of knowing and being known by God and others so that we have the capacity to, to try to make sense of our world and our lives and to question the meaning of our existence. We're not merely animals who are just you know, interested in survival and, and driven by mere instinct. No, the breath of God being breathed into our lungs shows that we're, we're different. We're not merely animals. We are uniquely spiritual beings made by a God who is himself spirit and who breathes his spiritual life into us so that we can know and be known by him. Alistair Payne Commenting on this very verse rightly concludes, no wonder then that we're only going to flourish in relationship with God. We've not been designed to make it on our own. Right? And this is important to highlight for us. In a world where we so often are dead set on making it on our own, aren't we? Especially in a time and place where in uh, what's called expressive individualism is the kind of reigning way of thought. It's, it's really the water we all swim in. Whether we realize it or not, this ideology shapes and affects and directs our lives in some measure. E expressive individualism is this idea that each of us, as individuals, have our own unique way of realizing who, we actually, who it is we actually are. And the most important thing for each of us, then, is first discovering who you truly are inside and then expressing that, that unique you to the world. You hear it often in the, the slogans, things like, you be you, be true to yourself, follow your heart, find yourself. You see it in nearly every Disney movie, but, but essentially it all boils down to this, just be and do whatever the heck you want, and don't let anyone tell you any different. And that can kind of sound good at first, doesn't it? Right? It promises a lot of freedom and autonomy and, and promises a lot of happiness, but, but as Alan Noble argues in his wonderful book, You Are Not Your Own, very rarely do people ever talk about the darker side of this way of life, which is this. Expressive individualism places upon you the unbearable burden of accounting for your own existence, of determining why it is you are alive and why you matter. You now have to somehow create meaning in your life out of thin air. You've got to create value and purpose for yourself. You are in charge of justifying your own existence. And can we just be honest? That's terrifying, isn't it? It's no wonder people in our society are increasingly anxious and afraid and agitated when the stakes are so high. That's a huge weight and pressure to put on yourself. That's an unbearable burden if left to yourself. But as Noble points out, if we're created by God, then as a creation of God, you have no obligation to create yourself. 
Your identity is based on God's perfect will, not your own subjective, uncertain will. This does not mean that you don't have a, quote, true self. You do. But it is just not one that you are burdened with creating. We live as our true selves and we stand transparently before God moment by moment. As Kierkegaard reminds us, the self's task is to become itself, which can only be done in relationship to God. And as we, because we're God's creatures, we belong, our, our lives will only ever make sense in reference to Him and in relationship with Him, which brings us next to the fact that we belong in relationship with God. We belong in relationship with God. And this is seen here in, in, in several really important ways. This, this, this kind of, we're being beckoned here into this, this intimacy of relationship with the Lord. For one, we see it in how God is named here, right? In, in Genesis 1, God's transcendence was emphasized, and so he is appropriately given this title there, the Hebrew word Elohim, which is translated again and again as simply God. But maybe you noticed here as we've been reading Genesis 2, how Moses is continually referring to him as the Lord God now. You see that in verse 4, verse 5, verse 7, verse 8, 9, 15, 16. Again and again, he's called the Lord God. And you can see there in your Bible how the word Lord is probably given all capital letters, isn't it? Well, why is that? Well, it, it in that, the translators of our Bibles are indicating something important to us because whenever you see the word Lord in all capital letters like that, they're showing that this word being translated here is the word Yahweh. Yahweh, which is the, the covenant name that God gives his people to call him by in Exodus 3. Yahweh is the personal name given to God's people by which he reveals himself to be their covenant God. And just so, here Moses translates, he transitions from, from, uh, rather, from calling the Lord Elohim to calling him Yahweh Elohim, giving this passage a more personal and relational emphasis in what we saw in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. But then not only that, this passage also shows that we belong in personal relationship with God by the intimate way in which the Lord creates and forms humanity. Look at how he makes the man at the beginning of verse 7. For other creatures and aspects of creation, what do we see in Genesis 1? God's word brings them forth. God merely says a word for sun and moon and stars, for light and, and, and darkness, for land and sea, for fish, stars, birds, earth, these earthbound creatures to come forth, and they come forth, don't they? Highlighting his status as the divine king. But here in Genesis 2, for humanity, see how the Lord gets, he gets more personally involved. He, he's, he's said to reach down into the dust of the ground and to form the man, as it were, with his very own hands. If I could put it this way, there's, there's more of a personal touch here, isn't there? And that's nothing compared to what we see in verse 7. And how the Lord not only <clears throat> reaches down to form us from the dust of the ground, but God, Yahweh, the personal covenant Lord, it says, breathed into the man's nostrils the breath 
of life. Just imagine that for a moment. That would involve coming face to face with the man intimately close. Touching even with the mouth as it were. Derek Kidner says of this, breathed is warmly personal with the face-to-face intimacy of a kiss. And the significance that this was an act of giving as well as making and self-giving at that. He says, in in essence, God is depicted here as, as kissing life into humanity. Showing something of the, of the intimacy for which God created us. We, we belong in relationship with Him. We were created from our very beginning to know and to be known by God in face-to-face intimacy with Him. Perhaps we should just linger here for a moment. Because I... I, I th- I think it might sometimes be very easy for us to mistake the heart of the Christian life for something other than this kind of face-to-face intimacy with the Lord. Especially in our tradition, it might be very easy for us to confuse intimacy with God as, as zeal for Christian knowledge. Make the mistake of thinking that, that intimacy with God is synonymous with merely learning more things about Him. Some of us, when when we approach the Bible, or listen to sermons, or study theology, we, we, we might not do it to enjoy fellowship with God and, 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 and deeper relationship with Him, but to gain new, novel knowledge, to know more stuff, to fill our heads with more information about the Bible and about God. Please don't misunderstand me. I we don't want less Bible in theology, right? We, we want more. We want to grow in Bible study skills and grow in theological understanding and comprehension and all that. Yes and amen. But, but do you realize that you can still, you can know a lot of things about someone without ever intimately knowing them? I know a lot of stuff about Charles Spurgeon. I've never met him. Never been face-to-face with him. Never had a conversation with him. I don't know him. You can know a lot of things about someone without ever experiencing intimacy with that person. You can relationally be an inch deep and have knowledge a mile wide sometimes in our tradition and it pass off as you are mature and you know the Lord, which is frightening. Or perhaps others of us might confuse intimacy with God for zeal and Christian work. Some of us, rather than being fired up about Bible knowledge and and theological understanding, we might get fired up about doing things for God, being on mission, evangelizing the lost, serving those in need. And we ought to be zealous about such things. We ought to care about this world and about our neighbors, absolutely. But you know, in, in Matthew 7, 22 and 23, Jesus tells us that there will be some one day 
who were evidently extremely active in his name, it says that there will be some in, in, in the day of the coming judgment who will have been doing all sorts of mighty works in his name, and yet they will be cast out in the coming judgment. Why? He tells them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Friends, it, it might be easy for us to mistake knowing God with knowing a lot of things about Him or doing a lot of good things in His name. But you remember the, the, the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2 where they were commended for their good works and solid doctrine and yet they were rebuked because they had abandoned the love that they had at first. Perhaps they had forgotten that our Bibles, our, our doctrine are given so that we might intimately know God and that our work for God is meant to be an overflow of our intimacy with Him. But that what is meant to be at the center of our life is this, this relationship of intimacy with the Lord Jesus. It was J.I. Packer who, who lamented this very thing in his book, The Quest for Godliness, where he says that when Christians meet, and they talk to each other about their Christian work and Christian interests, their Christian acquaintances, the state of the churches, the problems of, of theology, but rarely of their daily experience of God. Modern Christian books and magazines contain much about Christian doctrine, Christian standards, problems of Christian conduct, te techniques of Christian service, but little about the inner realities of fellowship with God. Our sermons contain much sound doctrine, but little relating to the converse between the soul and the Savior. Thus, we make it plain that intimacy with God is a small thing to us. Is intimacy with God, a, is it a small thing to you? Do you know him? Do you walk in close, intimate relationship with him? Do you know the thrill of fellowship with him in your soul? Do you know the, the kiss of your father? That's what you were made for. You belong in relationship with him. And then lastly, closely related, you belong in residence near him as well. You belong in residence near God. And now up to this point, we actually haven't said much about Eden or the garden here. In verse 8 here, though, we, we read about this, this place called Eden and about this garden planted there in the east. And this is where the man is placed after he's created, there's a land called Eden, and in it there's this garden planted by none other than God himself. And this is where the man is, is placed and supposed to dwell. And, and this garden is depicted as a place filled with abundant beauty and provision. There's an abundance of plants and trees, all beautiful and useful for humanity. And among them are, are two trees that are particularly significant that we'll learn more about next Sunday. But then in verses 10 to 14 here, we also learn about a great river which flows in Eden, bringing life and nourishment 
to this garden. And this river, as it flows out, it, it turns into four other smaller rivers going into various lands, which themselves are lavish and, and lush as a result of this, this divine water source. And, and all of this is showing us that this place is an abundant paradise, and it's meant to excite our, our longing to dwell in such a flourishing place. Even, even the word Eden itself, it means delight, or, or sometimes it's translated as paradise. And we might be familiar with some of that, but, but we might not be as familiar with the fact that actually this garden paradise is being portrayed to us as a divine sanctuary, as as something of a temple of God's presence, as a place that in all of the earth where, where heaven and earth overlap in a particularly intimate way, this is a place where in God's dwelling and humanity's dwelling are meant to, to kiss. And it's a place where God's relational presence is meant to dwell with His people, right? Of course, we believe in God's omnipresence, omni meaning all, presence, obviously talking about his, his presence, that, that God is simultaneously present everywhere at once. And yet the Bible will also sometimes depict the Lord as being present in a special way in certain times or places. And different people might call it different things. Sometimes they call it God's manifest presence or God's relational presence. God is, is specifically, especially present in a way that he's not present everywhere else. And this garden is here shown to be one of those places. And, and this is seen particularly in the many similarities with which we see Eden and the tabernacle built later in Exodus, right? The tabernacle is the place in which God's relational presence dwells with humanity. His glory dwells among his people, beginning in Exodus, in the tabernacle. But here's the thing, that's depicted as something of a restoration of what humanity had here in the garden in the beginning, and we see this in several ways here. You can see my, uh, I made this. Um, don't make too much fun. I, I spent a little while on it. Uh, but you can see here how the tabernacle consists really of, of three main areas. The Holy of Holies, that's the, the, a special place of God's relational presence. And then out from there, the holy place, and out from there is the, the outer court. These dimensions are not exact, so don't hold me to it. But you can see here how the Garden of Eden actually corresponds to that. There's the outer world, and then there's the land of Eden. And even within Eden, there's this, this garden sanctuary, this, this place that corresponds really to the Holy of Holies. And furthermore, we see it in how both Eden and the tabernacle face east. And we see it in how the cherubim, and well, with the flaming sword in, in Genesis 3.24, guards the eastern entrance of Eden after the fall. And how images of the cherubim are actually embroidered on the veil, the curtain, sectioning off the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. We see in how the tree of life is present there in the Garden of Eden and, and, and how the lampstand made to look like a tree is present in the holy place. We see how in, in Eden, is, it's a land filled with gold and precious stones just as the tabernacle is bedecked with the same. We see it in Genesis 2.15 where Adam is commissioned to work and keep the garden, it says, which we'll talk about more next week. But what's interesting is that Israel's priests were commissioned to do the exact same thing, using the exact same words in Numbers 3, 7, and 8. 
We see it in Genesis 3.8, where the garden is shown to be a place wherein God walks in the cool of the day with his people, just as in Leviticus 26.12, the tabernacle is shown to be a place where God walks among his people. And we could name many more parallels here, but suffice it to say for now, the garden in Eden is here depicted to us as a garden sanctuary wherein God's relational presence dwells with humanity. And you know, beloved, there were most certainly many wonderful realities experienced by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. There are a plethora of reasons why the garden is rightly called this place of delight and paradise. If we were to think about what makes this place so, so wonderful, so delightful, we might think of, of the wonder of a world without death. We might think about work without the thorns and thistles that follow Genesis 3. We might think about the gift of marriage and family without all the conflict and complications that come after Genesis 3. We might think about a world without human suffering or sickness or scarcity where you're fully provided for and healthy and well. We might think about this abundant feast laid out before us with all this pleasurable provision of food and drink. There are many things we might long for and ache for knowing and feeling in our bones that we belong in such a place. You know, the best thing about Eden, the most delightful thing about the garden is that it was a sanctuary wherein humanity enjoyed and communed with God and His relational presence. The best thing about the garden was God. It was being in God's relational presence and enjoying communion with Him as His beloved creatures. And that's where true and ultimate delight is found. That's where we find true satisfaction, a satisfaction that can transcend and endure through any earthly circumstances. As St. Augustine once said, you made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That's what our souls ultimately long for and ache for in this wilderness world wherein we currently dwell. Listen, friends, more than you need marriage or family, More than you need a healthier marriage or family. More than you need bodily healing and wholeness. More than you need less thorns and thistles in your work. More than you need better provision. More than you need anything else in this life. You need communion with God and His relational presence. King David knew this, didn't he? We we read earlier... From Psalm 27, verse 4, where David says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. Not one thing, not many things, not just a few, one thing he's after here. And, And don't misunderstand, he's not saying that the only thing he's seeking in life is God's presence. He's got other concerns, I'm sure. He's a king, he's got a job. A lot more stressful than your job. He's married and his marriages are bad. He's got a bunch of crazy kids. He's got a lot going on. 
He's probably trying to handle all of that well, but even still, he's saying that there is only one ultimate thing that he is after in life, meaning that all other activities and desires and duties in his life, they're all like little streams that he's seeking to merge into one great river, into one ultimate aim and goal in life. One thing, above all and in all and through all, have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. In other words, to dwell in God's relational presence and to there enjoy communion with Him. That was David's ultimate aim in life. Why? Well, he knew this is, this is the deepest delight humanity can possess. This is where you belong. Psalm 1611, in your presence there's fullness of joy at your right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. He knows there's no greater satisfaction in life, no better delight, no place wherein you more belong than here. In God's presence, where true, lasting joy is found even without ideal circumstances in life. Even when it seems like everything else in life is falling apart, do you know that God's presence can turn a hell into heaven? It's turned lion's dens into lands of delight. It turns Paul's prison cell into a paradise. It turns graves into gardens. One day it will renew and remake this entire fallen world. God's presence is what we were made for. It's where true and lasting delight is found. And so I just ask you, is the chief aim and goal of your life this? Are you longing? Are you thirsting? Are you pursuing and seeking God's presence as your one ultimate aim in life? It's what you were made for. It's the source and summit of the Christian life. It's where you belong. So important, so vital, so, so ultimate, friends, that the Son of God himself would come and give himself for us so that we might have it again. So Jesus didn't merely come to give us the forgiveness of sins, although that would have been enough. He didn't merely come to give us power to progressively overcome sin's power in our lives, as wonderful as that is. He didn't merely come to give us eternity in paradise without suffering or death or sin, although that's infinitely valuable. But he came, most importantly, to give us himself. And that's the best part about the gospel. The best part about the garden was God. And the best part about the gospel is that we get him again. That's why Jesus came. That's why John 1.14 tells us he came and was tabernacled among us in the flesh. That's why he walked among us as our Emmanuel, as God with us. And not only that, but that's why he, he sacrificed himself on a Roman cross because we needed that sacrifice to make the way. Understand, if, if you would have walked into the tabernacle in that desert, that eastern entrance in the desert outside of Egypt all those years ago, the first thing you would have laid eyes on was an altar a place where bulls and goats would be slain to remind God's people that sin has a penalty and that it must be paid 
if we are indeed going to get God again, that God's presence is too holy, too pure, too good for sinful humanity to enter without payment. But as Hebrews 10.4 says, it was impossible. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now we, we need a more precious sacrifice of a much greater cost. We need the precious blood of Emmanuel. And because he shed his blood, because he he sacrificed himself on the altar of that cross for us 2,000 years ago, friends, Hebrews 10, 19 and 20 says we have confidence. Now, we have confidence. We have boldness to enter the holy places by his blood. In other words, In other words, we again have access to the relational presence of God to commune with Him to this place of our joy, to the place we belong. And what's more is that after dying on that cross, He didn't stay dead three days later. He rose again and He appeared to His disciples and to over 500 people at the same time, many of whom would go to bear witness to the reality of his resurrection. And, and that's precisely what they did, but not without his presence going with them. Because 40 days after he rose, Jesus ascended to heaven. And from there, he sent the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to fill us as his people. Breathing new life into us as his own, just as he breathed into Adam here in Genesis 2. So that now... We actually, in the New Testament, are called the tabernacle, the temple of God. We are the place of His presence so that we can seek and enter in communion with Him by grace here today and find our joy and delight in Him forevermore. Friends, we belong in the relational presence of God. We belong in relationship with Him. Our lives only make sense in reference to Him and by His grace, He has accomplished everything needed to bring us to this place that we belong. And so trust Him this morning. Turn to Him this morning in repentance and faith. Come find what this world cannot offer. Come find your joy here complete. Taste the living water. Never thirst again. Rest here in His wondrous peace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, to know that you are with us and for us, to know that you have paid the cost, might know and rest in your presence forever. What more could now heaven possibly give? What, what more is there for us to crave or need? And so we just ask for grace from the Holy Spirit, for grace to seek your presence all the more, to walk in step with your spirit, to seek communion with you and our souls by your spirit, even now as we come to the table. May it be to us a time of sweet fellowship with you, our God, and our Savior, so that we might be strengthened to walk with you in this wilderness life and to dwell with you in fullness, in the fullness of your presence in the life to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.